Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Later this hour, we'll talk with Lori Schumacher. She's the author of Surrendered Hearts, an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. Quite an odyssey for she and her family. She'll be joining us later this hour. Well, I had an opportunity earlier today to attend the eighth grade graduation of my niece, who is going to be a freshman at Rex Putnam next year. Wanted to say congratulations to uh, Bailey and her classmates. The class of 2023, if I um, understood the principal uh, correctly, it was uh, fun to watch her graduate. And I know many of you have attended graduation ceremonies over the last several weeks. Earlier this month, we uh, had the opportunity to watch my grandniece graduate from kindergarten. Now, when I was a kid, you got through kindergarten. It was like, okay, next. (laughs) But now they actually have ceremonies. And it was very encouraging to, she goes to a little Christian school and uh, to hear the scriptures recited and um, the things that they knew about um, the country and the the globe. And it was just kind of an encouraging thing. Anyway, thinking about her going off to high school makes me feel a, a little bit older than I wanted to feel today, but I'm grateful to be around and grateful that she's moving from eighth grade matriculating, as they say, on to, uh, to high school. I know that that uh, sort of steps up my um, cheerful obligation to pray for her, to stay engaged in her life, to keep that connection strong, um, because she's going to need all the support that she can get through high school and in the years beyond. And what an honor it is to be a part of a young person's life, uh, as I've had the opportunity to be a part of hers. Well, I wanted to issue an alert before we take a look at some of the headline news in Cannon Beach. Oregon health officials say today uh, they've issued a health advisory um, after elevated levels of fecal bacteria were found in the ocean. You don't think about that being the case, but they say that people should avoid direct contact with the water until the advisory is lifted, according to the Oregon Health Authority. Now, some might be listening to us from Cannon Beach, where we are heard through a translator. Children and older people are most vulnerable to the bacteria, which health officials say can cause diarrhea, stomach cramps, skin rashes, upper respiratory infections, and other illnesses. Normal activity on the beach don't uh, on the beach doesn't pose any health risk if people avoid the water. So, kind of a sad thing to be at the beach and have to avoid the water. But the above normal bacteria level in the ocean can come from sources like stormwater runoff, sewer overflows failing septic systems, animal waste, according to um, Oregon Health Authority. Beachgoers are also urged to avoid wading in nearby creeks or pools of water on the beach. So there you have it. If you happen to be a beachcomber for the day, for the week, uh, and you're at Cannon Beach, they say, stay out of the water. Apparently that doesn't impact Newport or Seaside or any of the other areas along the Oregon coast at this time. Well, taking a look at some of the headline news, Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, one of Congress's most vocal critics of the president, placed the blame squarely on the White House after Iran announced it could enrich um, uranium up to 20 percent, just a step below weapons grade level. Omar took to Twitter on Monday, condemning the president's decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal shortly before the Pentagon approved sending a thousand more troops to the Middle East in response to the attack. Now, this is to serve as escorts to vehicles making their way to and from the Straits of Hormuz. None of this would have happened if Trump didn't 
back out of the Iran nuclear deal, she tweeted. Well, she doesn't know that, but Omar said the U.S. should get back to negotiations with Tehran and reinstate the Iran nuclear deal. The tension between the U.S. and Iran has been increasing in recent days after a high-profile attack on two oil tankers in the Straits of Hormuz. The U.S. blamed Iran for the attacks, which the country denied. U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, released new images yesterday showing the aftermath of the attacks, including some images purportedly uh, showing Iranian forces removing an unexploded device from the hull of one of those vessels. And President Trump late Monday announced on Twitter that the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, will begin the process of removing the millions of illegal aliens who have illicitly found their way into the United States. But he didn't elaborate on what new measures will be taken. They will be removed, the president went on to say, as fast as they come. Mike Morgan, the acting director of ICE, didn't announce any new initiatives during his stop in Louisville on Sunday, where he spoke about the humanitarian and national security crisis at the border. Other reports are suggesting that ICE didn't really know what the president was referring to. And President Trump uh, officially uh, kicks off his uh, political campaign, his re-election campaign, at a rally in Orlando, Florida tonight. Supporters have been lining up for days. Uh, Trump voters started gathering outside Orlando's Amway Center more than 40 hours before the event was scheduled to start. The president tweeted on Monday morning that his campaign has received more than 100,000 ticket requests for the event in an arena that only holds 20,000 people. And the State Department has confirmed uh, that another American tourist has died in the Dominican Republic. Reportedly, it was a New Jersey man who was found dead in his hotel room floor. Joseph Allen, 55, of Anvil, New Jersey, was found dead last Thursday morning. The popular Caribbean vacation destination has been grappling with a rash of deaths of U.S. tourists in their hotel rooms at various resorts. Of the seven other recent deaths that have become publicly known, Dominican investigations have said five were caused by a heart attack. The conservative Parkland shooting uh, survivor and pro-Second Amendment activist who dropped, who was dropped by Harvard University after past offenses, offensive remarks and racial slurs surfaced. Uh, appeared on Monday on the story with Martha McCallum, where he apologized and asked for forgiveness. I'm extremely sorry for it, and I wish I w- could take it back, but I can't, Kyle Kushov uh, told guest host Ed Henry. All I can do now is seek to right a wrong. He revealed on Twitter that Harvard rescinded his admission after the remarks he made as a 16-year-old came to light. The student, now 18, called comments offensive, idiotic, and inflammatory and said he made them before the mass shooting, which transformed him as a person. Which is just another reminder to not just young people. This kid was 16 at the time these offensive comments were made. He's now 18 and has lost a spot at Harvard University that your... um, Tweets, your Facebook posts and uh, and the like will follow you into adulthood and will uh, have the potential to have very serious consequences for your future. Just another uh, reminder. Well, the State Department revealed yesterday that it has identified multiple security incidents involving current or former employees handling uh, Hillary Clinton emails and that 23 violations and seven infractions have been issued as part of the department's ongoing investigation. More on that later in the program. And via CBS News, the U.S. government officially announced Monday that it will cut millions of dollars in foreign aid to Central America, warning governments in the region that assistance will only resume when they do more to prevent their citizens from migrating. Meanwhile, Mexico apprehended nearly 800 illegal migrants Saturday, an indication that its government is stepping up immigration enforcement with pressure from the president, according to the Daily Caller. 
And Governor Andrew Cuomo on Monday night signed legislation granting drivers licenses to illegal immigrants in the state shortly after the controversial measure passed the state Senate. On this day in 1983, astronaut Sally Ride becomes America's first woman in space as she and four colleagues blast off aboard the space shuttle Challenger. And on this day in 1815, Napoleon Bonaparte meets defeat at Waterloo as British and Prussian troops defeat the French in Belgium. On this day in 1948, Columbia Records publicly unveils its new long-playing phonograph record in New York. And in 1979, President Jimmy Carter and Soviet President Leonid Brezhnev signed the SALT II Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty in Vienna. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Lori Schumacher, Surrendered Hearts, an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. She'll join us in our next segment. Hey, on this day in 1992, by the way, the U.S. Supreme Court in Georgia versus McCollum rules that criminal defendants could not use race as a basis for excluding potential jurors from their trials. Big day for some of us. Well, it was a sea of red under the sweltering sun Tuesday as thousands of Trump supporters decked out in MAGA-inspired attire waited outside the Amway Center hours before the president's arrival. That has now taken place. Some had been camped in chairs for several nights. Others traveled from afar, but almost all were there to show their unwavering support for the Trump 2020 uh, re-election campaign. The rally was slated to begin at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, so about an a little uh, less than a, or a little more than a half an hour. He kept his promise. He is passionate about America. He wants to keep us safe. I am tired of people hating on him. He's doing the, his best to defend us. That's a quote from Alan Machapinto of New Jersey. Uh, I'm watching the uh, Dow. We have the lowest unemployment ever. Well, meanwhile, a, a teenager and um, and her grandmother, Ashton Smith of South Jacksonville, woke up at the crack of dawn in anticipation of the momentous occasion, as they refer to it, when uh, the president was to announce he is seeking a second term. From the moment he said he was running, I was a Trump fan, Tracy enthused, stressing she was uh, in no way disappointed by his performance. Well, this is a big day because this kicks off, at least from the Republican side, the 2020 presidential campaign. It's been going on for some time among the Democrats and the first uh, lineup of uh, debates are scheduled for next week. So that event is scheduled to begin in earnest in a little over half an hour when the president takes to the stage. Well, President Trump abruptly announced uh, today that acting defense secretary Patrick Shanahan is withdrawing from consideration to lead the Pentagon. And he's naming Secretary of the Army Mark Esper as his replacement, at least temporarily. While speculation is brewed for days about Shanahan's status, The announcement came shortly after the publication of an explosive USA Today report that the FBI has been probing a violent domestic dispute from 2010 between Shanahan and his then-wife as part of his background investigation. In a resignation letter on Tuesday, he said, It is unfortunate that a painful and deeply personal family situation from long ago is being dredged up and painted in an incomplete and therefore misleading way in the course of this process. A U.S. official uh, says that Shanahan uh, would, and he did, uh, withdraw. He went on to say, I believe my continuing in the confirmation process was forth- would force my three children to relive a traumatic chapter in our family's life and reopen wounds we have worked years to heal. Ultimately, their safety and well-being is my highest priority. He added, I would welcome the opportunity to be Secretary of Defense, but not at the expense of being a good father, end quote. 
Well, after the 2010 incident, Shanahan and then-wife Kimberly both told police the other punched them. According to USA Today, Shanahan denied the allegations. Though my marriage ended in sorrow and disappointment, I never laid a hand on my then-wife and cooperated fully in a thorough law enforcement investigation that resulted in her being charged with assault against me, charges which I had dropped in the interest of my family. Well, the Washington Post also published a story on Tuesday detailing other domestic violence incidents involving the family, including how his son was arrested in 2011 after allegedly beating his mother with a baseball bat. So this is an area of some uh, concern. Without referencing the report, the president said Tuesday the acting secretary will not go forward with confirmation in order to focus on his family. Um, Acting Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan, who has done a wonderful job, he went on to say, has decided not to go forward. I thank Pat for his outstanding service and will be naming Secretary of the Army Mark Esper to be the new acting Secretary of Defense. I know Mark and have no doubt he will do a fantastic job. Well, Esper has served as Secretary of the United States Army since 2017. He graduated from the United States Military Academy in 86, the same year as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Well, last month, the White House announced the president's intention to have Shanahan permanently lead the department. He had been the acting director following his time serving in that capacity. At the time, Shanahan said he was honored by Trump's decision. If confirmed by the Senate, I will continue the aggressive implementation of our national defense strategy. He said, I remain committed to modernizing the force so our remarkable soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines have everything they need to keep our military lethal and our country safe. End quote. But in recent days, there were signs that Shanahan's confirmation had stalled as the Senate Armed Services Committee, the panel that would have held the hearings on the nomination, still had not received paperwork formally nominating Shanahan to the position. Uh, news outlets were told that the panel was still waiting for paperwork from the FBI's background check. Well, that was uh, made public in the Washington Post and the USA Today articles that has now ended uh, his bid. Well, U.S. Central Command or CENTCOM released new images on Monday showing the aftermath of uh, mine attacks against two oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman last week, including some images purportedly to show Iranian forces removing an unexploded device from the hull of one of those vessels. Hours later, Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan said that he had approved a, a, a request from CENTCOM to send approximately a thousand additional troops to the Middle East to address air, naval and ground based threats in the region. The recent Iranian attacks validate the reliable, credible intelligence we have received on hostile behavior by Iranian forces and their proxy groups that threaten United States personnel and interests across the region. He said the United States does not seek conflict with Iran. The action today is being taken to ensure the safety and welfare of our military personnel working throughout the region to uh, and to protect our national interests, end quote. Well, the military says that some of the 11 new images uh, taken from a Navy helicopter show members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard uh, removing a limpet mine from the side of the Japanese-owned uh, Kakuka Courageous oil tanker. Other photos show a large hole in the side of the Courageous above the waterline that officials say appears to have been caused by another mine. In a statement, CENTCOM uh, reaffirmed that uh, the Trump administration's previous claim that Iran was responsible for the attacks and the uh, uh, on both vehicles or vessels and the resources and proficiency needed uh, quickly to remove the unexploited limpet uh, mine was done by Iranian forces. The images were made public one day uh, before the Secretary of uh, State Pompeo was scheduled to meet with CENTCOM commander. Pompeo has said that a new deployment of U.S. troops to the Middle East is an option in response to last week's attack.
They will be removed as fast as they come, the president said. President Trump late Monday announced on Twitter that U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement will begin the process of removing the millions of illegal aliens who have illicitly found their way into the United States, but he didn't elaborate on what new measures will be taken. The director of the agency, Mark Morgan, didn't announce any new initiatives during his stop in Louisville on Sunday, where he spoke about the humanitarian and national security crisis at the border. ICE didn't immediately respond to a request for clarification either. An administration official said that the new effort would focus on the more than one million people who have been issued final deportation orders by federal judges, but remain at large in the country. Countless illegal aliens not only violate our border, but then break the law all over again by skipping their court hearings and absconding from federal proceedings, he went on to say. These runaway aliens lodge phony asylum claims only to be no-shows at court and are ordered removed in absentia, the official said. Well, these judicial removal orders were secured at great uh, time and expense, and yet illegal aliens not only refuse to appear in court, they often obtain fraudulent identities, collect federal welfare, and illegally work in the United States. Enforcing these final judicial orders is a top priority for immigration and customs enforcement. So again, they are targeting those who have been given a final order for um, deportation from the country. Well, some in the pres- in the administration, I should say, believe that decisive uh, shows of force like mass arrests can serve as effective deterrence, sending a message to those considering making the journey to the United States that it's not worth coming. Earlier this month, the president announced that the U.S. reached a deal with Mexico that includes plans to return migrants seeking asylum to Mexico, where they will remain until they can be processed. He praised Mexico in a tweet, saying the country has been doing a very good job at stopping those trying to gain access to the U.S. border. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Lori Schumacher. She tells her story in her first book, Surrendered Hearts, an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Let me ask you a question. What does it look like to live a surrendered life? What does it mean to let go of the things you hold so tightly and lay them at the feet of Jesus, believing for better things? I mean, you have plans, you have dreams. Well, Lori Schumacher is an author, a writer, speaker, and certified life coach. She faced her own need to surrender after a crushing heartbreak when her family was going through the adoption process. She shares her story in her new book, Surrendered Hearts, an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. The book will resonate with those of us who have experienced all kinds of loss and that need to surrender facing any kind of struggle. She writes about what it looks like to surrender the expectation to what life should look like and instead live the life God has orchestrated for you. How God taught her surrender when the daughter that she longed for, that her family longed for, was adopted to someone else. How to pick up the pieces after heartbreak and trust God's plan. Her heart is to encourage others to meet the challenges of life with the hope of Christ. As an adoptive, biological, and special needs mom, she's followed God as he's opened doors to ministering to many along their adoption and parenting journeys. And her prayer is that through her work, he continues to encourage the hearts of not only moms, but women and families everywhere. Lori Schumacher is an author, a writer, a speaker, a teacher, a certified life coach, and she's a mom. Her heart is to encourage others. Uh, as an adoptive, biological, and special needs mom, she's followed God as he's opened doors to minister to many along uh, the journey. Her first book, Surrendered Hearts, is an, an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. 
is a book in which she shares her family's adoption story and the miracles that happen when we live surrendered to the one who makes the impossible possible. She also blogs regularly at Lori Schumacher, and that's spelled with an I, Lori Schumacher. Dot com. She, her husband, and their three children live in Arizona, but today she joins us by phone to talk about her book, Surrendered Hearts. Lori Schumacher, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me in. Well, you, your husband, and two children, one of whom had faced significant health issues, um, you still felt it was important to adopt into your family. What spurred your heart toward international adoption, given the challenges of the family that you and your husband were, were already raising? You know, it wasn't necessarily a call for international adoption. That was not, I didn't have my heart set on that. I just knew I had this feeling my whole life. And as I got older and my relationship with Christ strengthened, I knew that God was impressing upon my spirit that our family was going to adopt, that adoption was a part of our future. Now, it was something I dreamed of from the time I was a little girl. I, I, don't, I don't know what or where or, you know, how God, there were several things in my life that God showed me along the way. I know that he used to prepare my heart for that. But um, when I married my husband, he didn't have that same feeling or know that call from God. And it took the years of praying and waiting for God to work on his heart for him to decide that he wanted to adopt as well. And, uh, but God did it because when he calls us to something, he's he's pretty relentless about it. (laughs) So at the time that you were preparing to adopt your husband and sons, and again, one of whom had significant health issues, they were all on board? Yes, definitely. So, you know, once my husband felt that call and I remember that one evening we were standing in our in our bedroom and we were looking out through our windows into our backyard and and talked about how how pretty the backyard looked and and I said you know we've been blessed to be a blessing and he said yes and he looked at me and he's like are you ready to adopt (laughs) yes of course you know so that one moment always just stands out in my mind and and from there everything I started doing more and more research and just praying, praying, like, did God call us to international? Did he call us to domestic? Did he call us into a private adoption? Is it foster care? What avenue did he want us to pursue? And I just would pray, research, and just um, look for that sense of peace that God gives us when we know that we're walking in obedience to him. And that's how he led us to this a little girl in, in Bulgaria that we fed, fell head over heels in love with, all of us immediately. Mm. You came across her picture, and uh, upon seeing her face, you knew that this was a little girl for for you. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and what transpired from that moment when you recognized that this is our daughter moving forward. Well, she was in an email to me, and um, it was an email that was sent out periodically from the adoption agency that was saying, um, that the, um, the for the children that had were marked with special needs, the adoption agencies were allowed to advocate for these children. And so they would send out periodic emails with children in there. And I had always looked through the emails and felt that I uh, felt that sense of praying for each of the children and that compassion. And but I never felt anything beyond that. And then one morning I opened up that email and I saw her face and it was just a Holy Spirit moment. And I broke out in a sweat and just heat from head to toe and the emotions, the tears just started pouring. And I just, that was the face that God had just implanted in my heart my whole life. And so I was convicted in that moment. 
Now, granted, we hadn't necessarily agreed that um, a special needs child was part of our future. Actually, my husband and I really didn't think that we were that equipped to be able to handle that. And so um, I was worried about what he might say. But uh, that evening, I showed him the email. First, I asked him, please just read everything, pray first, then talk. Don't say anything before. And he had the same reaction that I did. So we got that. We moved forward and started proceeding to adopt that little girl. Um, However, things didn't go as smoothly as we had planned. Mm. One of the chapters in the first part of your book is titled, The Story Began Long Before We Knew. Um, You had had your heart set on this particular little girl, but your heart was open to adopting in general, however God would direct you. When it was determined that this little girl was not available for you to adopt, what did that mean for you in terms of your relationship with God and your understanding of uh, his his direction for you and your family? How did that impact this relationship, particularly in light of the subject of your book, which is surrender? So it was so confusing. You know, we, we feel like, okay, I'm God, I'm, I'm following you. I'm being obedient. I'm searching for this peace. I'm going wherever you lead. And I am just desperately trying to pursue you, God, and follow Yet when I do and feel this conviction beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is the little girl that's meant for us, but yet she's not, and it all falls apart. And so you just are left with this feeling of confusion. But but I thought, God, but I thought, oh, why would you? So I wrestled with him, and there was grief. I'm also um, a mom who has suffered a miscarriage. And I can tell you that 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 grief that I suffered upon that miscarriage was very similar to the grief that I that I experienced when we were told we wouldn't be able to adopt this little girl. I had a mother's heart. I loved her already long before she was in in the world, you know, in my arms physically. And so, when I had to wrestle with God about that grief, it took it took months and months of of trying to do the right thing, but yet kind of. Trying to be the good girl with Jesus and trying to like go to church, worship, do all the right things, but yet there was this resentment resentment toward him that I wasn't being real with. So it took uh, six months, and at the end of that six months, I knew that I had to get some time to be alone with God, to get out of the busyness of life and just be alone. And my husband gave me a weekend to myself, and I spent that time in prayer and I spent that time in the Word. And you know what? I just, I really, I got real with God. I cried and I I let him know how I felt. And I, and God, obviously God knows how we feel when we're, when we're angry and upset and confused with him. But I, there's something about really being honest about it ourselves, because just like our own children, we want them to come to us honestly, even when we know what they did, we want them to come to us with that. And so when I went to God with that, I finally let it all out. There was just sense of peace and it over and I was overwhelmed with this peace that said okay God if this little girl is not meant to be mine there's a reason for it and maybe maybe all you wanted was for me to be her prayer warrior for the rest of time for all the days of her life Lord then I'm going to thank you for that and I am going to feel so blessed to have loved this child and to have been given the opportunity to pray and that I will do, and I will be diligent, and I will be obedient in that, and because I'm going to choose to believe and walk by faith and not sight, because it doesn't make sense to me. 
but maybe this is what it was, and my prayers are going to make all the difference in her life. And when I came to that point, that was when I finally had fully surrendered to the situation and allowed God to start working in me that open heart again to say, okay, life isn't how I thought it was going to be, but that doesn't mean it's not good. Mm. We're talking about an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. The book is titled Surrendered Hearts. My guest, Lori Schumacher, will continue our conversation in just a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Lori Schumacher. Her book is titled Surrendered Hearts, An Adoption Story of Love, Loss, and Learning to Trust. Now, just before the break, we were talking about the fact that spending time alone with God, you learned something about surrender that the circumstance really um, required you to, uh, to experience. In moving forward, were you so discouraged by the loss of this little girl that you had imagined was to be your own that perhaps adoption wasn't in your future? Or how did that impact moving forward? Can you hear me? I'm not sure she can hear me, and I don't know why. Lori, can you hear me? I'm going to put her on hold, and maybe you can fix that. I'm not sure what the situation is. Anyway, we're talking with Lori Schumacher, her book, Surrendered Hearts. And if you've just joined us, she and her family had uh, set their hearts on adopting a little girl in Bulgaria. And once they'd made the decision, this was the girl they strongly believed was to be a part of their family. It was learned that she was to be adopted by a family in Italy. Well, that was a devastating blow, and it took uh, it took Lori about six months, really, to process the loss of... Uh, this little girl, but she came to the conclusion that if her role in this girl's life was uh, simply to pray for her for all the days of her life, then that would be enough. But what about moving forward with the prospect of adoption? We're hoping to get her back on the line to share with you the rest of the story. By the way, the book is published by Redemption Press and is available in bookstores. This is Lori Schumacher's first volume. So her first book, again, Surrendered Hearts, an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. We're also anticipating uh, momentarily the president is going to announce his 2020 um, uh, run for the uh, for re-election. This is his kickoff rally in Orlando, and we'll be following that in the second hour of today's program. Okay, we've got Lori on the line. We're going to see if we can make this work once again. Lori, can you hear me? I can. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I don't either, but I'm just glad we can talk now. I was asking you about the disappointment of this first uh, little girl from Bulgaria who had been adopted by another family that really forced you to consider what it means to surrender. Were you reluctant to become that vulnerable again in possibly pursuing another adoption opportunity? Oh, definitely. It was it was really hard. It's hard to keep putting your heart out there when you know that there's a chance to get hurt. And that's part of the whole surrender and and being willing to follow God wherever and however he calls and know that even if you hurt, that God's going to pick up the pieces and make it something beautiful somehow, some way. So yes, I most definitely was very, very nervous about that. But after I found that peace, um, when I finally surrendered and said, however you meant for me to love this little girl, even if it means praying for her for the rest of my life, and that's the only role I'm supposed to have in her life, then I thank you for that, God. And I praise you for that opportunity and for that blessing of being able to love this child. There was this peace that came over me, and I was ready to go back into that world of the adoption world. 
which you did, and you write in the uh, book Surrendered Hearts, about a day you logged into a chat room online with people who were interested in adopting from Bulgaria, and something rather remarkable happened. Tell us about it. So in that moment, I logged back in there, and there's all these emails that I had not been around to read, and so you know, a lot of people would just wipe up that email box and start all over again. But I had to read through them for some some reason. God was calling me, read these, read these. And there was one woman's email. Now, now this is a group of international adoptive families from around the world. So there's thousands of people in this group. And but there was one woman whose story kind of went over the last six months since I had logged out and not been back in. Her story kept drawing me in, and I liked reading what she was telling, and I loved following her story, and she was very positive and faith-based. And, and you know, one day I just said, you know, I just want to send her a little email and say, hey, thanks for being so positive in a place that can get really hard and sometimes really negative. And that's what I wrote her. And she responded to me. I didn't even expect her necessarily to respond to me, but she responded, and we began a friendship, and it just went back and forth for a while. Well, what happened is that that very woman had had a friend in the adoption world. So this woman was from Ohio. Her friend was in Hawaii, and her friend had began adopting a little girl in Bulgaria, but it was falling apart. It wasn't she had gone over there and was realizing that she wasn't meant to be this little girl's mom. Mm. Now, long story short, God wove together our life in Arizona, this little girl in Bulgaria, a family in Ohio, a family in, um, in Hawaii, a family in Italy, and the Ministry of Justice and all the people involved on the Bulgarian end of this. All of them came together. And the person that I met and reached out to and emailed ended up connecting me to someone who was going to adopt our daughter but didn't and realized she wasn't meant to be her mom. And the very day that we put all these pieces together, there was a file. Our daughter's file file was laying on the file on the desk ready to be put into the file cabinet of the children who they call unadoptable because they've tried to adopt them a couple of times and it's fallen through. So they stop working on those children's files and they move on to the next child in their list. And that happened to be the very little girl whose eyes and face I saw months ago and had finally surrendered back to God. It turned out that the family in Italy that I had been told had adopted her hadn't adopted her. And then it had gone to this, that she had gone to this woman in, in Hawaii, and that fell through for various reasons. But all of those pieces came together for us to find her in the very last moment that her file would have been able to be found. Which is just an incredible thing. But you went through the process of uh, surrendering, experienced the patience of waiting, and this little girl whose eyes you met in a photograph was to become your daughter. You named her Selah. What did that mer- mm-hmm. word mean to you, uh, given this process leading up to her becoming a part of your family? It means to reflect upon God's goodness, to, to be still, to look, look deep into what he's doing and what he's saying, and, and just, you know, to praise him, to just take in that moment, and that's you know, I expanded on that meaning a little bit on our own personally, but yet we find it in the Psalms and it, it, it means to just to 
take in, to reflect, to to think about God's goodness. And that's what I wanted her life to reflect. Because in all this time, in all the time that we are waiting and praying and hoping, God's goodness was prevailing. Every time I look at her, I can say, I see God's goodness in this little girl. And it's, you know, our story ended up in such a positive way. And and I don't mean that to say that as soon as you surrender, God's going to make your, your want come true. That's not always going to be so. But sometimes I believe that we're holding on to things so tightly that we're not allowing God his space to do what he needs to do. But we're holding on to it instead of opening our hands and surrendering it to him to do his work in, 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 a, in a mid, a mid it. Sorry. <laughs> What do you say to um, families who are listening who are in that process of either having been rejected, in the process of waiting, in the process of searching? Maybe they're discouraged. What do you say to them uh, looking back over the time that, uh, that it took to you, uh, for you to get your daughter and for God ultimately uh, to settle your heart in this whole thing? I would tell them that every step you're walking right now is part of the plan and it's part of the preparation. And God has something good planned for you. He has a life. He's marked those steps. And what you're doing right now is preparation for that. And it may not look like what you envision. It might look like something different. But on the back side of it, you're going to be able to look back and say to different moments, like, I know why I had to wait. There's some things we won't ever get those answers to. And, you know, maybe it's that day we come face-to-face with Jesus. But in the here and now, we can say, I see it. I see why I had to prepare. I see why it made me. Those years of waiting, when our daughter did end up coming home to us, she had was prof- with a, had a lot more special needs than we ever dreamed possible. Um, she has a significant number of special needs. And our family life was turned upside down. And learning to become a special needs mom was another whole journey for us for me and for our family. So it still didn't work out like I dreamed, but I knew from what I had witnessed God do before that I knew that he would do again, that there's beauty in that, that there's, if I just keep walking and I just keep following and I just keep trusting and I keep handing it over to him, that I know that no matter how I see it, it may not be, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be good. Very, Mm -hmm. very good. Mm -hmm. Well, Lori, thank you so much for talking with us today. And I want to uh, suggest our listeners take a look at Surrendered Hearts, an adoption story of love, loss, and learning to trust. It will encourage your heart to press into God. Thank you so much, Lori. Oh, thank you so much for having me and allowing me the opportunity to share my God story with you and your, and your listeners. Thank you. News traffic coming up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is the time. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. James Lind is producer of today's program, Clark Hilton Engineer. Well, in a concurring opinion in a Supreme Court case announced on Monday, Justice Clarence Thomas issued a lengthy call for his colleagues to overturn, quoting, demonstrably erroneous decisions, even if they have been upheld for decades 
prompting legal observers to say Thomas was laying the groundwork to overturn the seminal 1973 case, Roe v. Wade, that establishes a constitutional right to abortion on its head. Well, Thomas's blunt opinion came in a case concerning the so-called double jeopardy doctrine, which generally prohibits an individual from being charged twice for the same crime. But both pro-life and pro-abortion advocates quickly noted the implications of his reasoning for a slew of other future cases, including a potential revisiting of Roe v. Wade. Now, again, he wasn't speaking about that decision, but it certainly has application. When faced with a demonstrably erroneous precedent, my rule is simple. We should not follow it, Thomas wrote, noting that lower federal courts should also disregard poor precedents. Thomas went on to add that precedent may remain relevant when it is not demonstrably erroneous. Kristen Clark, the president and executive director of Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, uh, said that th- Thomas's comments were part of a larger attack on abortion rights. Again, he's not talking about that subject, but it certainly does apply or could be applied. One can't ignore the timing of Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, which comes at a comment uh, at a moment, rather, when we are seeing a coordinated and relentless attack on Roe versus Wade across the country. Well, there has been a relentless attack on Roe versus Wade since its inception back in 1973. It's only now taking some traction. So this isn't anything new that we're seeing today. However, we are seeing uh, lawmakers uh, willing to stand against it and establishing laws that prohibit its use in ways that pro-lifers have only dreamed of in the past. She went on to say the laws that have been adopted in several states violate the court's settled precedent in Roe. In his concurring opinion, Justice Thomas had made clear his willingness to reject precedents that he personally deems incorrect, a position that unnecessarily politicizes the court. Well, not necessarily. The Drew Scott decision suggested that I, as an African-American, only measured up a certain percentage in value to a Caucasian American. So precedent is not always right. And while he wasn't referring to Dred Scott, it certainly is a, a, a worthwhile example of the fact that Supreme Court decisions can be erroneous. Again, Justice Thomas was not talking about Roe versus Wade, but in the context of the case they were ruling on, having to do with um, whether or not double jeopardy can apply when a state um, uh, prosecution and a federal prosecution for the same activities uh, are constitutional. In other news, the State Department revealed on Monday that it has identified multiple security incidents, that's their uh, phrase, multiple security incidents involving current or former employees' handling of uh, Hillary Clinton's emails and the 23 violations and seven infractions have been issued as part of the de- the department's ongoing investigation. Now, the information came in a letter to Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who's responsible for overseeing the security review. To this point, the department has assessed culpability to 15 individuals, some of whom were culpable in multiple security incidents. That's a quote from Mary Elizabeth Taylor, the State Department's assistant secretary in the Bureau of Legislative Affairs, writing to Senator Grassley. Uh, DS, the department, has issued 23 violations and seven infractions incidents. Uh, this number will likely change as the review is uh, pr- as the review progresses, end quote. Well, the State Department said it expected to conclude the investigation by the 1st of September, which, of course, is months away, and acknowledged that the probe was unusually time-consuming. Given the volume of emails provided to the department from former Secretary Clinton's private email server, the department's process has been necessarily more complicated and complex, requiring a significant dedication of time and resources, Taylor wrote. Well, the department also noted that disciplinary consequences were pending. So accountability apparently is part of this ongoing investigation. 
Um, in every instance in which the department found an individual to be culpable of a valid security violation or three or more infractions, the department forwarded the outcome to the Bureau of Di- uh, Diplomatic Security Office of Personnel Security and Sustainability to be placed in the individual's official security file. All valid security incidents are reviewed by DS um, and taken into account every time an individual's eligibility for access to classified information is considered. So this does not suggest that there will be prosecution or accountability in any context outside of a future bid for access to classified information. This referral, she went on to say, occurred whether or not the individual was currently employed with the Department of State and such security files are kept indefinitely. Consistent with the federal policy for individuals who were still employed with the department at the time of the adjudication, the department referred all valid security violations or multiple infractions to the Bureau of Human Resources, end quote. Well, the State Department declined to release the names of the employees consistent with its procedures. The department promised another update once its review is completed. And again, we're told that will be sometime in early September. Well, Clinton's private email use has remained in the spotlight and the Department of Justice probes... uh, potential misconduct in the handling of federal authorities, surveillance and intelligence operations in 2016. Well, last month, a trove of partially redacted FBI documents from the agency's investigation into whether Clinton mishandled classified information, a probe known as the mid-year exam, revealed that top Clinton aides were um, shocked at apparent attempts to hack her private email server. The document released revealed numerous episodes in which the Clinton team either suspected it had been hacked or seemingly acknowledged that security measures had come up short. OMG uh, top um, aide Huma Abedin wrote to Justin Cooper, the technology pro overseeing the private home-based email server, when she told her shortly after midnight on the 9th of January, way back in 2011, that someone was trying to hack us. Well, in uh, March, it was revealed that the Justice Department negotiated an agreement with Clinton's legal team that ensured the FBI did not have access to emails on her private server relating to the Clinton Foundation. Former FBI Special Agent Peter Strzok testified about the arrangement during a closed-door appearance before the House Judiciary Committee last summer, according to a transcript released this year. A significant filter team was employed at the FBI, Strzok said, to work through the various terms of the various consent agreements. Limitations imposed on agents' searches included date ranges, the names of, of domain and domains rather, and people, Strzok said, among other categories. Well, the agreement was reached, Strzok said, because according to to the attorneys, we lacked probable cause to get a search warrant for those servers and projected uh, that either it would be a very long time or it would be uh, impossible to get to the point where we could obtain probable cause to get a warrant. So the FBI was barred from determining whether or not there were actual hacking incidents, whether or not classified information had been subject to that. Well, former Utah Representative Jason Chaffetz, who chaired the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee until 2017, Uh, said the arrangement signaled that agents wanted willful blindness. What's bizarre about this, he says, is in any other situation, there no possible no possible way they would allow the potential perpetrator to self-select what the FBI gets to see. Chaffetz said, uh, noting that the FBI was aware that the servers contained classified information in unclassified settings. The FBI should be the one to sort through those uh, emails, not the Clinton attorneys. The Department of Justice's goal, Chaffetz said, was to make sure they hear no evil, see no evil. They had no interest in pursuing the truth. Well, surprisingly, in 2019, there's an effort to um, 
try to determine what the truth was at that time and the implications in our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Broadway depiction of former President Bill Clinton and former First Lady Hillary Clinton will be ending its run early due to underwhelming ticket sales. The production of Hillary and Clinton was scheduled to close the 21st of July, but producer Scott Rudin announced Monday that its final performance will be held Sunday. Uh, The play cost $4.2 million to produce and accumulated only $4.7 million at the box office. So at least they made $5 million, according to The Hollywood Reporter. The show titled Hillary and Clinton takes place in March of 2008, offers a fictional behind-the-scenes look at the former Secretary of State's first presidential campaign. As then-Senator Barack Obama began gaining momentum, the play stars Tony winners Laurie Metcalf as the Democratic candidate and John Lithgow as former President Bill Clinton. Metcalf was nominated for her lead performance at this year's Tony Awards, but lost to Elaine May in the Waverly Gallery. The play premiered in Chicago in 2016 with an entirely different cast, premiered on Broadway in April of this year at the John Golden Theater. The playwright, Lucas um, Nath, uh, described his production as a play about the Clintons that's not a play about the Clintons which may explain why it's closing early. The cast also featured Zach Orth as former Clinton pollster Mark Penn, Peter Francis James as Barack Obama, referred to in the play as The Other Guy. The early curtain call comes as Hillary and Bill's national tour also struggled to find an audience this year with some tickets uh, for the 13-city event, selling it more than 50% off. Well, the House Intelligence Committee heard from artificial intelligence experts in a meeting, uh, this was last Thursday, over the potential threat It's called deep fake technology, deep fake being one word, technology. It could pose, uh, well, a challenge on America's national security leading up to the 2020 presidential election. Now, that's just what we need, another security challenge to the 2020 election. Deep fake videos are made using facial mapping technology and artificial intelligence. Earlier this year, which one might argue some politician, I won't go there. Earlier this month, a crudely altered video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi circulated on Facebook, showing Pelosi appearing to slur her words as if drunk. Well, the video sparked concern with lawmakers who fear that kind of technology, that technological trickery, could interfere with the public's assessment of a candidate's uh, uh, leading up to the 2020 election. Not only may fake videos be passed off as real, but real information can be passed off as fake. Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat out of California, the committee chairman, said it's increasingly difficult for the public to determine What is true? Now, this is much more significant than just the presidential uh, run in 2020. But this technology has the capacity, if refined sufficiently, to deceive people in ways we've never seen before. Well, Schiff said that Pelosi's video demonstrates the scale of the challenge we face. But he said he fears a more nightmarish scenario with uh, these videos spreading disinformation about a political candidate and the public struggling to separate fact from fiction. Well, it could go far beyond a particular candidate, but an individual speaking on a particular political or other issue. And outside the realm of politics, all kinds of issues, religious Education, you name it. Well, creating convincing fabricated videos once required expensive equipment and software, but now a high school student with a good computer can do it. 
That's according to David Dorman, a former official with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, a unit of the Pentagon who spoke at that hearing. Well, the altered video of Pelosi, which was viewed more than three million times on social media, gave only a glimpse of what the technology can do. Experts dismissed the clip as nothing more than a cheap fake, but another more realistic video of Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg circulated social media this week. The short clip posted on Instagram, a platform owned by Facebook, supposedly shows Zuckerberg speaking directly into the camera and boasting of his company's supposed control of the people's data. Well, at the hearing, the committee showed a few examples of deep fake videos, including a face swap created by a researcher at the University of California at Berkeley that depicts the face of Senator Elizabeth Warren on the body of Saturday Night Live actor, the Bay Area's Fox 2 reported. Well, Tech analyst Larry Magid, he told lawmakers that social media users need to pay attention to the sources of fabricated videos before sharing them. Now, I have to tell you, once a day in the course of going through a variety of news websites, um, I will go to um, several, including Facebook. And it's amazing to me how much untrue information is found there how much uh, information is there that's dated and is no longer true, and it's posted and reposted as if it were current and as if it were true. There's no context, there's no verifiability, and so on. Well, he also suggested that tech companies revise their policies to better curate content and decipher what is real and what is fake. Now, it's also possible to take something real and try to pass it off as fake in order to undermine the credibility of whoever happens to be Featured. Well, that idea drew skepticism from the committee's top Republican, Devin Nunez of California, who raised concerns about granting too much authority to tech giants like Facebook and Twitter to make judgment calls about content, content rather. And he claimed current filters have a pro-liberal bias. Well, U.S. intelligence officials have repeatedly warned about the threat of foreign meddling in American politics, especially in the lead up to elections. And this is just another cog in that wheel. U.S. officials determined Russia carried out a sweeping political disinformation campaign on U.S. social media to influence the election, or at least attempt to. The director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, has said Russia attempted to meddle in the 2018 midterm elections, but was unsuccessful that time around. Perhaps they weren't quite as determined with a midterm election as they would with a presidential election, which we are facing, of course, in 2018. 20. Some of the challenges in trying to um, discern what's true and what's false, what one sees and hears, the face of someone familiar, the voice of someone you know, may or may not, given this technology, and I would imagine in the days ahead it will be refined so it's much more difficult to tell, may be more difficult for us to do. Again, it's, uh, it's an amazing world of technology that has tremendous potential to do good, but always has that underbellied side in which it can be abused in ways that undermine the good of the, uh, the people. Well, here in the state of Oregon, the House has passed the controversial climate change policy. The Senate is presenting a bit more challenge, but it's moving forward and at least is being considered there before Sine die, the end of the Oregon legislative session. Well, after a marathon debate, some uh, stall tactics by Republicans and the expression of a lot of frustration, the House passed Oregon's controversial climate change bill on Monday. The vote was 36 to 24. The bill now heads to the Senate, where a narrower vote margin for passage is already creating more drama there. House Republicans kept the debate going for nearly six and a half hours, many rising several times to 
decry the disastrous effects they uh, argue, and I think rightly so, the bill would uh, have on jobs, energy prices, and Oregon's economy, all for an un. Um, uh, perceptible impact on global greenhouse emissions. They propose sending the bill back to committee for more work, asked to delay it uh, indefinitely, and uh, they uh, lofted a procedural challenge to House Speaker Tina Kotek about whether the bill required supermajority approval versus a simple majority. Well, Democrats voted down their motions and passed the bill. House Bill 2020 is one of the most complex and sprawling pieces of legislation ever to come before the Oregon lawmakers. It envisions a wholesale reduction in Oregonians' use of fossil fuels, cap and trade as a part of it, and an associate de- associated decrease in greenhouse gas emissions equivalent to 80 percent below 1990 levels by 2050. Now, this can be a pipe dream unless the technology exists to make that possible or you simply force people out of their cars Um, with no uh, alternative. Well, to get Oregon there, the policy would require companies in the utility, transportation, and industrial sectors to buy emissions allowances in a state-run auction or on a secondary market to cover each metric ton of pollution or so um, called carbon equivalents their operations uh, emits. As the state reduces the supply of allowances, they'll get more expensive, increase fossil fuel prices, incentivizing businesses, the theory goes, and consumers to reduce their consumption of related emissions and put a lot of money in the coffers of the state. Now, House Bill 2020 is one of the most complex and sprawling pieces of legislation. It will raise gas prices by 22 cents in the short term, $3 by 2050. It will raise utility prices by over 50 percent, the cost to consumers uh, like, well, you and me will be extreme and uh, and it will be high. But the environmental difference will be minimal as Oregon already has strict carbon rules and low carbon emissions. If you want to weigh in on this, as I mentioned, it's been passed along to the Senate. It's going to be a little more challenging uh, to get through there. But now is the time to communicate with lawmakers on that side of the aisle. 31 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, bicyclists may soon be able to treat stop signs like yield signs when it's safe to do so, says Captain Obvious. I mean, this is already happening. It's not the law, but it happens all the time. Well, the Oregon Senate voted 21 to 8 on Tuesday to allow bicyclists to legally treat stop signs or intersections with flashing red signals as a yield sign, meaning they wouldn't have to uh, come to a complete stop. We're talking about Senate Bill 998. It says bicyclists can legally proceed through an intersection, <clears throat> excuse me, or make a turn in either direction without stopping as long as they slow to a safe speed, yield the right of way to pedestrians and yield to traffic that is already in the intersection or approaching so uh, close as to constitute an immediate hazard. Now, this is a judgment call. And while most bicyclists, bicyclists I am guessing, are good um, judges of when to engage in that kind of um, writing. It's not always the case. And it's a little frustrating to imagine now that you have legal sanction to ignore the rules that make it possible for all of us to navigate in the same space. Well, the bill now moves to the House of Representatives for approval. Oregon bicycling advocates have pushed for the rule change for more than a decade. They argue it's common sense law that worked for more than 35 years in Idaho. And we all want to be just like Idaho. Other states have followed suit. They've passed legislation similar to the so-called Idaho stop, or in this case, the Idaho I don't have to stop. Senator Floyd Prezansky 
uh, out of Eugene, said he first introduced the bill in 2003, said it's very simple fix, allows bikes to maintain momentum instead of coming to a full stop. He said bicyclists are not allowed to treat traffic signals the same way, and he stressed the bill only applies to bicyclists. So introducing another challenge or potentially introducing another challenge for motorists who are now trying to navigate with bicyclists, pedestrians, scooters. Um, this is an effort to once again make it less and less feasible to drive a car. It might be working. Facebook head of um, Calibra, David Marcus, on the uh, social media platform's new cryptocurrency, Libra, says that Facebook opens a new window. It's rolling out a new cryptocurrency. It opens a, a new window platform that could provide the embattled social media giant. I'm not sure how embattled it is, but with a new revenue stream of historic proportions as it contends with a possible federal antitrust probe and continued scrutiny over its data privacy practices. Now, cryptocurrency, I don't really know a whole lot about it. I don't know how it, I mean, I know how it works, but um, this is a whole new version of it that Facebook is introducing. It's called Libra. Mark Zuckerberg's company announced on Tuesday, if we can verify that it was, in fact, a legitimate uh, announcement, that the creation of Calibra, uh, a subsidiary that will oversee Facebook's interests in Libra, uh, including a digital wallet for the new cryptocurrency, rather than exercise direct control over Libra, Facebook is going to partner with investors such as Visa, PayPal, Uber, as a member of the Libra Association, an independent entity that will manage the cryptocurrency. Well, the digital wallet will be available to in Messenger, WhatsApp, and as a, a standalone app. It's expected to launch in 2020, according to the company. Facebook's cryptocurrency could thrive in emerging markets, providing a more stable alternative for transferring money in areas that, uh, with volatile currencies and unstable governments, according to uh, to capital markets. Well, the firm expects Libra to facilitate person-to-person payments, traditional e-commerce, and spending on apps or gaming services on Facebook-owned properties. We believe this may prove to be one of the most important initiatives in the history of the company to unlock new engagement and revenue streams. That's uh, from uh, RBC Capital Markets. Uh, in a, a note to investors, well, they set the price at $250 for Facebook shares up from currently uh, current levels of $187. Facebook partnered with more than a dozen companies to form the Libra Association. The cryptocurrency will be tied to several traditional fiat currencies in a bid to protect Libra from price volatility that has uh, hurt other leading digital currencies such as Bitcoin. So if you want to delve into this whole new way of uh, doing uh, commerce, Libra. Company executives warned in April that Facebook could face fines of up to $5 billion to settle a Federal Trade Commission inquiry into a, its data privacy practices. They're also among several tech companies, including Google and Amazon, that are expected to face federal scrutiny in the coming months over possible antitrust violations. So this new revenue stream, I'm sure, is very important uh, to Facebook moving forward. And for those of you who have um, young daughters, Imagine your daughter scrolling through an article from a teen website. Now, you, uh, you think, okay, teen website. You imagine it's age-appropriate. It's going to uh, only write about things that a teenager should be thinking about or interested in. Well, imagine your daughter scrolling through an article from a teen website. Coming across the line, I am a doctor, an expert in sexual health, but when you think about it, aren't I a sex worker? And in, a, in some ways... Aren't we all? No, we aren't all sex workers. But anyway, this is the line. 
Well, the perennially misfiring Teen Vogue magazine is facing controversy again this week, this time for publishing an article titled Why Sex Work is Real Work. In it, a doctor argues not only that prostitution should be legalized, this is a teen website, but also that it's just like any other career. You know, radio, working in the cafeteria, at school, being a teacher. Uh, I find it interesting that as a medical doctor, he goes on to say, I uh, exchange payment in the form of money with people to provide them with advice and treatment for sex-related problems, therapy for sexual performance, counseling, therapy for relationship problems, and treatment of sexually transmitted infection. Isn't this basically sex work, he argues in the teen magazine? Who is this doctor and what do we need to do to get him defrocked? Which, of course, isn't the right way to describe what you do to a doctor. But anyway, it's one thing to argue for the decriminalization of prostitution, which I wouldn't argue. But it's another thing to do so on a teen website and to argue that sex work carries with it no baggage other than it being just another job. Now, he mentioned that one of the things he does is the treatment of sexually transmitted infection. But, of course, that doesn't really matter because if you're a teacher in a classroom, it's just the same. If you're uh, engineering a radio program, it's just the same. Now, you're not vulnerable to or exposed to sexually transmitted disease, but that's not relevant, apparently, in this teen magazine. To say that selling sex is the same as becoming a doctor who treats sexual issues is disingenuous at best. And dangerous at worst. Well, the website has been um, no stranger to controversy for some time. After it asked Hillary Clinton to guest edit the magazine, pulled its uh, print issue due to flagging sales and started pushing online content such as a guide to, well, I can't even say what this guide is to, and yet it's being marketed to teenagers. I'm embarrassed to even think that this is there. But anyway, according to the publisher, which is Cond Nast, Teen Vogue is the youngest person's guide to saving the world. Uh, but most of its audience, it appears, isn't even young people. As uh, Tina Lowe reported last fall, according to data from uh, ComScore, TeenVogue.com, had about 8,341,000 unique visits in May of 2017. One year later, they had barely half that, which is encouraging. Most um, concerningly for the magazine, just 1.7% of their May 2018 audience was 17 or younger. Only 2.6% were 18 to 24. At the absolute most generous estimate in Teen Vogue's digital audience, the only audience they still have after they um, shelved their print edition with a final copy featuring Hillary Clinton on the cover, one in 20 readers is an actual teenager. But it's uh, I, I mention it to serve as a warning that if you imagine that things that are marketed to teens are age appropriate, that they have uh, Embedded in it, as was once the case, a moral compass, what's appropriate uh, according to their age and what kind of wise uh, advice you would want to give to a young person. That is no longer an assumption that can be made. And Teen Vogue is just the latest example. Uh, They only have the online edition and apparently uh, teens are less and less engaged with the magazine. But there certainly are some who still are. So keep your uh, eyes and ears open. And then there's this. Spending time on the Internet is reducing our ability to focus on one task at a time, and it means we no longer store facts in our brains. If the power goes out, we may not be able to call a friend. We may not be able to navigate from one place to the other because we've no longer engaged. And I'm referring, of course, to those who rely heavily on the technology. We no longer rely on our brains to be able to Um, maintain information that might be useful. We simply rely on our phones or whatever navigational advices, uh, devices rather, we might be um, relying on. Our lives have been forever changed by gaining access to infinite amounts of information at the touch of a button, 
but the way our head works has too. Well, a new review looking into the effect of the online world on our brain functions from researchers in the UK, the US and Australia has drawn a number of surprising conclusions. The review focused on the World Wide Web's influence in three areas, attention spans, memory, and social cognition. It notes that the Internet is now unavoidable, ubiquitous, and a highly functional aspect of modern living before diving into how it's changed our society. Professor Jerome Saris, an author on the paper, told Medical News Today that the online world could have far-reaching consequences. He says the bombardment of stimuli via the Internet and the resultant divided attention commonly experienced presents a range of concerns. I believe that this, along with the increasing Instagramification of society, has the ability to alter both the structure and functioning of the brain, while potentially also altering our social fabric. Uh, The study found that people who regularly multitask online by checking different social media sites, um, such as um, Facebook or streaming entertainment, struggle to focus on a single task. And constant use of the Internet via our smartphones or laptops means that many of us have developed checking behaviors where the user looks at their phone regularly, but only for short periods of time. And finds it difficult to focus, for example, on the face of a person sitting across the table for a regular conversation. 46 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I mentioned at the top of the program that I had an opportunity to attend a middle school graduation. It was an eighth grade graduation, and every one of those kids is making their way from eighth grade. They're going to be a freshman in the fall. And it's uh, it's surprising as I think back over the life of, the, of my little niece who um, uh, was graduating, how quickly the time seems to have fl- flown. And I watched every one of those kids as their names were being called to receive their the equivalent of a diploma that at least indicated they were going to be moving on uh, to the local high school. And I looked at the kids, some who were more awkward than others, the more popular kids. When their name was mentioned, everyone raised their voice in excitement. I watched the kids who clearly had some sort of disability. I wondered about those who had been bullied, who were not really looking forward to the next year. And uh, I, I really teared up a few times uh, through this whole thing, thinking about that season of high school in which kids are put into boxes. It feels like this is the season in life where your entire future is uh, essentially determined by how you fit in the pecking order of a high school. That certainly is not the case. And then I was reminded of a, um, a study that uh, – a recent study by the Commonwealth Fund that indicated that statistics show that young people are not only more hopeless than ever before, but also view drug abuse and even suicide as a way of escape from a world where no one seems to be reaching out to them. Now, I don't know if um, uh, West Hills Covenant, they make their sermons available online. I attended service. We were helping with worship there this Sunday morning. The speaker was one of the youth pastors. She did an excellent job of characterizing the challenges of young people and the call for the church to provide a warm uh, environment where these kids are actually cared for and matter. Um, but if you have the chance to, to check it out, I should have uh, looked to see if it was online, but it was, it was just excellent uh, putting it into perspective. But according to these, uh, this new survey, increasingly they're choosing death as an escape. Now I'm not trying to conflate what I witnessed earlier today with that, but I was reminded of the challenge that young people face today 
and how um, how important it is for adults uh, to take seriously the opportunities we have to help them to recognize that they are valued. Well, a recent study by the Commonwealth Fund reveals that we've reached an all-time high in deaths from suicide, drug overdoses, alcohol abuse from 2005 to 2017. These deaths rose an eye-popping 450% in West Virginia alone. Other states experiencing a surge include Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia. Suicide is an unspeakable tragedy, but now some countries are actually allowing teenagers to choose death, even if they're not terminally ill. Just this past week, 17-year-old Noah Pathhoven died of self-starvation while her consenting parents were by her side. The victim of two rapes at the age of 14, she wrote a best-selling book at 16, had a strong support network of friends, and yet this adolescent girl was allowed to choose death over life, believing that life could not improve in any meaningful way. Dutch law allows children as young as 12 to choose euthanasia in order to escape their emotional, their psychological or physical pain. All a child needs for a suicide request to be granted is the permission of their parents or guardian. At 16, consultation isn't even required. This young girl request um, was actually denied, but no one did anything to stop her either. Well, how could a seemingly modern, civilized country allow a young person to die in such a manner? And could this callousness come to America? I thought about all of this today, sitting in that graduation ceremony. Thomas McArdle writes at Issues and Insights, there is a seeming um, distinction between Holland's euthanasia and assisted suicide statutes and those in the United States, most infamously Oregon, in that you don't have to be dying or in physical pain for the Dutch government to help you kill yourself. He added that the logic is there, ready and waiting to extend legal assisted suicide to those not terminally ill and in no physical discomfort. Proponents of assisted suicide claim that they're respecting individual autonomy. Richard Dorflinger rightly argues for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops that the assisted suicide campaign is not based on autonomy. It's based on a view that some human lives have less value, are less worth protecting than others. By legalizing assisted suicide for one selected class of uh, vulnerable citizens, society makes its own judgment that some people's suicidal wishes are inherently reasonable and justifiable. This is what Dorflinger calls false freedom and the culture of death. Well, the Daily Signal's Rachel DeGuidance uh, adds, a callousness to the value of life is on full display in situations coming out of Iceland, the Netherlands, Belgium, and other countries. The trajectory of countries that enshrine death as a right, both at the beginning and end of life, should force this country to think twice about the path we want to take, end quote. Well, sadly, that seems to be where we're headed. In New York uh, State, abortion is permitted up until birth. In Toronto, a hospital released a physician-assisted suicide plan for children, including a provision that parents may not be notified until after the child has died. In Belgium, doctors may terminate the life of any child of any age who makes a request. In the U.S., the group Compassion and Choices is embarking on an aggressive agenda to ensure that the right to die movement becomes accepted medical practice. One of their objectives is to block efforts by the American Medical Association to reaffirm an oppositional policy. But what's causing so many young people to feel as, as though they don't have a way out? After all, even without assisted suicide laws, most Americans than ever, or rather more, um, are either deliberately committing suicide or overdosing on drugs or alcohol to the point of death. 
A few years ago, human behavior specialist Dr. Gail Gross wrote in the Huffington Post that poor parenting is one reason why so many millennials are unable to cope with life. Gross explains when children are so pampered and protected that they don't get to try things out and test themselves against their environment, then they have a problem growing up, making decisions, coping with stress. As a result, some of these millennials feel paralyzed, dependent, and incapable of action, reporting higher levels of anxiety, stress, and depression. It's certainly more complicated than that, but it's an interesting perspective. Helicopter parents are only part of the problem. Other issues include the fact that we're living in a post-Christian nation where the belief in something greater than ourselves and the hope of eternal life are somehow unappealing, even unfashionable, given the breakdown of the American family, the sedentary and digitally immersion, uh, immersed world that uh, teenagers and ever-growing sense of entitlement among our youth. Is it any wonder that our kids feel like they have nothing to live for? Well, all the mental health facilities in the world won't save people from choosing death over life. Our world is changing, and it's changing fast. If we stand idly by while this culture of death um, continues to sweep across so-called civilized nations, the carnage will only continue. On a final, more hopeful note, marriage, family, and faith make a huge difference. That's worth sharing as well. Every young person that we happen to have a relationship with needs our attention. They need to know that they matter to us, that what they do is of interest to us, to better understand them, to give them a future and a hope by virtue of the time spent, uh, the the focus of our attention on who they are and what they're doing and reminding them that they're part of a community, um, that the community would be far less without them. I thought about all that this morning during a graduation of eighth graders looking at every one of their faces, thinking through what life might be like for them in high school. Some will have a great time. They'll look back on it. This was the best time of my life. Others regret going even now, looking back at their three years in middle school and thinking, is it going to be the same? Think about the disabled students. I think about those who are a little bit, well, odd. How are they going to be treated in high school? Well, I've made a commitment to pray for those I don't even know and certainly to make sure that my relationship with the one student I came to watch graduate knows that I care about her, not just generally in sort of in a loose sort of way, but spend time with her, pray for her, talk about how valuable she is to me, to our family, to our culture, to the future. And I hope you'll consider doing the same as these young people are moving from one one accomplishment to the next. I want to thank James Blend for engineering. No, he's producing and Clark Hilton for engineering. Well, you get the idea. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.